Artistic Whispers Productions presents Antithesis Book 2 Free Will and Other Compulsions A podcast novel written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer Author contact information at www.jdsawyer.net Featuring the vocal talents of Miss Calendar Kitty Nikian Nobilis Reed Stephen H. Wilson Kim the Comic Book Goddess with original music by Danny Shade. This story contains harsh language, sexual situations, and graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised. And now, episode four. Hello, this is Nobilis Reed of the Nobilis Erotica podcast at nobilis.libsen.com. You're listening to episode four of Free Will, and this is the story so far. Percy Scott managed, just barely, to survive a murder attempt by Volish. He escaped on a transport and clawed his way back to life after nearly dying in surgery in a hospital somewhere. Between planets, Casey Orenthal's ship, Kyrie, on an express run to Luna, has two passengers with their own agendas that might complicate Casey's life for a long time to come. Meanwhile, on board Fugitive, Joss Kyle prepares to execute his riskiest plan yet, but if he takes the dark road, he has no reason to believe he can make it out alive. And now, episode four of Free Will and Other Compulsions. Chapter 14 Fugitive Destination Unknown 20 November 2129 Out of view of anyone that mattered, and all but ignored by the convoy it tailed, Fugitive tumbled in a long, slow yaw maneuver until the radiators along her spine all pointed at Solar North, away from any listening posts. The motors at the base of their masts deployed them, extending until they stretched for twenty meters, each standing straight up like a razorback's hackles. Once deployed, her heat pumps kicked up the last notch to full, dumping all the excess heat from the cabin, the electronics, and the engines out into space. Inside, the air temperature dropped, at first comfortably from the 28 degree optimal running temperature down past zero as the moisture in the air crystallized and fell. When the cabin temperature reached minus 30, the ship reoriented. Her radiators retracted to their normal recessed dorsal nests and, after shutting down the Broussard polywell and the EM shielding it provided, fired her main torch, max thrust. The silence inside mirrored the quiet mechanical activity out in the void. All of her rooms were empty, still, disturbed only by the tiny ice specks floating about this way and that on little Brownian perturbations and falling when they got too big onto the little Myler tent that hung against the aft wall in Allie's quarters. When the burn was done, Fugitive again went to sleep, her internal clock the only non-biological machine on the ship that functioned at all. An hour before Fugitive's long tumble, Allie flew down the passageways in the ship, steering around corners and through hatches on the hand grips, moving as fast as she could. Every terminal she could find was shut to her, requiring an iris scan to get to the comm systems. 
She'd found God knew how many access panels, each one of them closed and locked with locks she couldn't pick using anything she had to hand. In the corridor, she uncovered at least two secret hatchways, both of them flush with the floor and barely distinguishable from the rest of the deck, and both covering locked bulkheads. That son of a bitch had locked her down, and in another half hour, he was going to try to force her, literally, to crawl into bed with him. As long as she hadn't tried to find a way around him, to find a way to get word out, she'd been fine. Then she'd let him get to her, goddammit, and now she knew just how trapped she was. She could kill him, she had no shortage of opportunities. She'd never actually killed anyone before, but she damn well knew how. He might be better at it than she was, but he obviously wasn't expecting her to try anything. She just might get the drop on him. She could club him with one of the galley chairs or make a garrote out of some of her clothing. In freefall, it would be nearly impossible for him to get enough leverage to throw her off. Once he was dead, she could use his eyes to get access to the computer. But she had no way to know whether he'd locked the computer down with codes that she couldn't crack if she killed him. Like voice prints. If he had, then she'd simply float willy-nilly through the solar system's gravity currents until she starved to death. Not for the first time, she wished she'd gone ahead and joined the military when she was 20 instead of taking up with Jim. Would have saved her an ocean of trouble if she could have gotten through the isolation training for space service. The way she started clawing at the walls inside her head when Joss didn't grace her with his presence every few hours didn't give her a lot of hope that she could have coped with it. Toward the end of the long, H-shaped corridor network, next to the airlock where she'd initially been trapped, was one last terminal. There may have been more, but if so, they were locked behind one of the dozen doors she hadn't been able to open. This was her last chance, and as chances went, she figured this one settled somewhere in the minuscule expanse between fat, slim, and none. Alright, Briggs. What did you do to- Shit. He might be listening. He was paranoid enough to have microphones everywhere. Probably had a camera in her quarters and in the head to watch her undressing. God, she was getting paranoid. So what was this little access panel for? It wasn't much bigger than the palm of her hand, with a little card-sized display above a 10 key and a voice pickup. It wasn't airlock control, that was a few meters back up the corridor. She tapped the hash key, and a prompt appeared on the screen. Enter password. Well, at least it wasn't biometrics, and the worst he'd do if he found her was lock her in her room, which he was going to do anyway in another 15 minutes. So what would a man like Briggs use as a password, assuming it wasn't extremely random? Maybe his real name? She translated B-R-I-G-G-S to 10-key substitution and typed in 22777444. Seven 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 seven. Password incorrect. Well, that figured. Allie shuffled through the files on Briggs that she kept in the back of her brain, what she could remember of them, trying to keep her sanity locked up with him, away from Jim and everything that kept her grounded. She hadn't expected to miss his moods and his insufferable solicitousness, but God damn it, at least with him she knew what to expect. No matter how irritating, unbearable, and god-awful it was... It was a life she knew. So what did she know about Briggs? How about the year he set off on the run? 2124. Password incorrect. Not the year of his run. Not his name. 
What else could it? His name. What was it he kept saying? My name is Joss Kyle. She typed in the numeric for Joss Kyle. Password incorrect. Okay, what about the whole line? She tapped in. My name is Joss Kyle. Emergency communications access granted. Next to the terminal, a hidden panel slid aside. Inside, she found a headset and a QWERTY keyboard. It can't be this easy. Allie reached inside and took the headset, slipping it on, and then typed Jim's routing number into the keypad. She stood there tapping her toe, and having to reposition herself every time she did as it drove her back from the wall, for nearly five minutes, certain that Briggs would come around the corner at any moment and catch her. Then, the thing she dared not hope for, and wasn't sure she really wanted. Hello, you've reached the answering service of Jim Hartman of Hartman Investigations. Mr. Hartman is currently engaged and his responses will be delayed. Please leave a message or data transmission after the beep. It beeped. Briggs still hadn't shown up. Jim, this is Allie. I'm on Briggs' ship, but I don't know where we are. He's got me on a long leash. I should be able to give him the slip at the next port. Maybe bring him in. Wherever that is. I'll contact you next time I can. She hesitated for a minute, knowing she should say something, anything, personal. He'd expect, I love you, but she couldn't say that anymore. Don't let Reeves trick you into anything stupid. She punched the disconnect button and returned the headset to its alcove. He was going to hate her for that last bit, but it was the best she could do. Alyssa Alyssa Hartman Hartman to your your quarters. quarters. Briggs' voice over the intercom. Just in time. Allie kicked off a grip recessed in the wall and shot back through the hall to her quarters only to find them empty. Briggs was giving her a couple minutes to get changed in private, or as private as it got on his ship. If she knew where the cameras were, she could avoid them, or at least spit on their lenses so he couldn't watch. But if he wanted her like that, he'd not have given her a private room with a lock on the door. Wake up, Alyssa. You're a kink in his plans, not the object of his kinky plans. Allie found the suit, a radiation-shielded unitard that covered her from neck to soles but didn't fit very well, and stepped into it. There was extra padding at the crotch and in the seat. She preferred not to think about why it was there, but made a quick visit to the head anyway and got rid of everything she could. Then it was time to shake out the tent, another laughable conceit. It wasn't much more than a double-wide mummy bag, and crawl inside. She turned her face toward one side of the bag and hoped, uselessly, that Briggs wouldn't come in. When he did slide in, he turned his back to her, and she did her best to distract herself from feeling like a beaten animal by reminding herself that she could, if she wanted to, kill him any time. Cold comfort, maybe, but it was what she had handy, and for the 24 hours she was stuck in there with him, it very nearly worked. Chapter 15 Earth Orbit 21 November, 2129. Alone in the desert, running from his brother, betrayed by his family, shunned by his father, with the world against him, Jacob had seen a ladder. Percy's pillows were fluffy, not stony, but the wilderness that trapped him was no less profound, and he didn't see a ladder. For him there was no easy promise of a climb to heaven. For him, there was only the carousel. Carnival attractions from hell carousels. Endless movement, forever spinning, a rushing pandemonium going nowhere, peopled by resin gargoyles painted all the colors of delusion. 
the stuff of innocent nightmares. The principal held in the sky, too, where the stars tumbled slickly by the picture window, always curving, never stopping. Somehow, the fact that he could see them at all would have been more comforting if they were falling from the sky rather than just tumbling. All he could do was watch it. The rest of his body wasn't working properly. Bits of him had frozen off and had to be regrown. Now, somewhere in his body, nanites reconnected and re-insulated his nerves. Soon, they would all work again. Right now, only the muscles in his face and the tendons in his left hand were under conscious control. He'd asked them for the window seat during his therapy. Looking out at the cold stars helped center him, helped him hold on to his vertigo in the artificial gravity. He needed the sense of falling. After freezing to death in the cargo hold, that sensation was all he knew of eternity. It would carry him through to his redemption. Somehow. Percy felt his neck muscles seize involuntarily, clamping down against a coming sudden exertion. It took nearly a tenth of a second for him to realize that someone was in the room, and some part of his mind had registered the sound of breathing, or footfalls, or a slight change in the air currents. Once he realized this, the muscles clamped down harder, first realizing that he was too late, that all his automatic defenses weren't working, and then realizing that he was helpless. Assuming it was a person and not a hybrid or a grav monkey, Percy's life was now a matter of whim for whoever it was. Are you ready to try eating again? The nurse's voice felt dark brown, very smooth, soothing. It was a nice change from the machines that soundtracked his days and nights since before he'd died. The adrenaline ebbed back out of his bloodstream, leaving the locked muscles to finish shredding themselves against his broken bones without its help. I think so. Percy's jaw worked, more or less. His voice was little more than a whisper. It was the best his diaphragm could manage yet. Swallowing was an iffy game, though. He didn't relish the prospect of choking on ice cream again, but last time he'd taken a sip of his water, he'd actually been able to get it all the way down and keep it there. Vanilla or chocolate this time? Chocolate's fine. Percy heard a container open, but he couldn't see anything in the glass. Too good an anti-glare coating, probably. He gagged a little bit as the first ice cream went down, but down it went. At least it was a male nurse this shift. Being washed and coddled by a woman felt like being mothered. A man, at least, felt like a professional who didn't give a damn. Once he'd had all the ice cream he could handle, which probably amounted to a little less than half a scoop, the nurse put the ice cream away and made an entry in the tablet at the foot of the bed. How's it looking? The nurse fussed over his chart for a moment. I'm not a doctor, but it looks from this like you're ahead of the curve. So, keep working those muscles. I'll tell the doc you want to talk to him when he comes back on shift. The last round of tests should be back from the lab by then. Bet he can get you a date to put on your Get Well cards. Super. Thanks. Percy shut his eyes again, trying to relax back into his trance until all the repairs worked. Don't go to sleep yet, buddy. We've got a new set of drills to do. Aw, come on, man. Leave me alone. I can't even breathe the whole day without help yet. Don't worry. It's not jumping jacks. The nurse, Percy didn't bother learning his name, 
raised Percy's right leg, and Percy did his best not to groan. Some of his nerves were working again, and whatever pain meds they had him on didn't do a thing for sharp, sudden shocks. Fucking neurology. Okay, you might feel a little pinch. Percy almost didn't hear that last little bit through his own scream. It felt like the bastard was amputating his left big toe. Once he got his breath back, he grit through his teeth. You're a comedian in your off hours, aren't you? <laughs> My wife says the same thing. Usually before she throws a pillow at me. Women, eh? The nerves in your big toe seem healthy. Can you wiggle it? Percy tried, but couldn't tell if anything was happening. Come on, wiggle it. Percy tried again. I can't. Open your eyes and look. Your body needs to remember the nerves run both ways. He cracked his eyes open, clamping down on his monkey-brained paranoia that he'd see the nurse smiling wickedly with a dull bowie knife poised above his toes. Of course it was nothing. The nurse was brandishing one of those little spiky-wheeled pizza cutters doctors use to test patients' reflexes. Percy squinted hard at the toe. Move. It didn't want to cooperate. After all he'd done to get this far, a toe was not going to stop him. Move, damn it! It twitched. Uncontrolled and barely noticeable, but it moved. Percy resisted mentally punching the air in triumph. Calm. Control. That was part of the recovery, too. Good job. Moving on. The nurse moved on to the next toe. This time, Percy was ready for the shock and managed to get through it with only a sharp hiss. It's good, I promise. Good bedside manner, this guy. God was merciful, in small ways at any rate. How's your memory doing? You remember your name? Mm. Simon. Simon Jones. Anyone you want us to call? Let him know you're here. Move this one. Wiggling was easier this time. Ah, my wife's a naturalist down in the Amazon. Wasn't expecting to see me again for another six months. Ow! The little pizza cutter came again. No way to get hold of her. Move this one. I wouldn't even be here if I hadn't got stuck in that damn loader. Lucky they pressurized the whole ship. Yeah, well... I'll be patched up in time to welcome her home. Maybe sooner. Do this one. Ain't she gonna be mad you didn't tell her? Nah, <laughs> she'll be glad I have something exciting to tell her for a change. Sounds like a hell of a woman. Percy smiled. He didn't notice till after he'd done it. She really is. And she was. That ever happened to her again. Oh, lucky guy. Wish my wife would take lessons. If everything works well, this is gonna hurt like hell. Percy grit his teeth. Hit me. The little cowboy spur rolled like a line of acid up the side of his calf, but Percy managed not to scream. It was penance, and he needed it to get back on his feet again and get home. A little pain now was worth all the freedom in the world. He had the hang of the toe thing now. He could close his eyes again. Another day, and he'd know how long he was stuck here. Until then, the stars would slip sideways, giving him an excuse to keep his eyes shut on the universe just a little bit longer. Chapter 16 Everywhere 20 November, 21, 29.
the omnivore sat on the network, quietly sniffing up all the little discreet packets of data that were foolish enough to travel over the wires. It had been there, in one form or another, for nearly a hundred and forty years. In the early days, it was just a dumb network node, doing word searches on text traffic and flagging anything that used one of a list of keywords associated with anarchist or terrorist activity. In its second incarnation, it had been put to more sinister use as the West's war against what would become the new caliphate hotted up. But even then, it was just a database. Intervening decades, gradual upgrades, nearly all of them extra-legal, had given it the food it needed to grow. The quantum and wetware machines that augmented it as they became available gave it the chance it needed to become what it now was. Aware. A limited kind of intelligence, like a reptile. It knew only its hunger for data, the satisfaction of pattern matching, and the feeling of stretching the tendrils of its primitive consciousness out across the threads of the web-like network that ran everything. By now, most people, even the ones that queried it for its output, had forgotten what it was, or why it was there. But it knew. And it delighted when it discovered that most rare of commodities, a piece of information that did not fit. A tickle at the edge of its awareness from something off-planet stirred it out of its zen-like state of unending now. A pair of facts in a medical record entered together that did not belong with each other. A DNA snip undeniably belonging to an entity that the omnivore knew to be dead and a partial fingerprint belonging to a different entity that the omnivore also knew, without question, to be dead. Both were attached to a name field that didn't match either. Simon Jones. It was a puzzle of a type the omnivore had never seen before. Its solution would present itself in time, as the non-conforming facts formed the basis of a search key to find other facts which might resolve the contradiction. Eventually, someone would ask it, and then it would know. Until then, it had nothing to do but listen. Chapter 17 Kyrie, bound for Luna, 16 November, 2129. <sighs> Ten more reps. Raising her arm against its own weight and the last of the gravity made Cassie's clavicle feel like it was going to pop a spring. Self-imposed physical therapy to help the muscle and bone knit stronger than it would have if she just let the stem cell seed packs do their job. She'd been injured and rebuilt enough to know that measured minor stresses on the healing tissues helped guard against re-injury. Minor stress. Yeah. In the same way that C4 was a minor explosive. Nothing hurt quite like the inside of a bone that was just begging to snap rather than have to bear the stress of an arm for three more raises. Two decks below Cassie's quarters on the bridge, Jim Hartman stared at the nav screens. A spaceship couldn't simply disappear, but Briggs' ship didn't show up anywhere. As far as he could tell, Fugitive might just as well have slipped through a black hole into a neighboring universe. Allie, if she even survived the blast off last week, was gone with it. 
After what he'd done on Mars, she'd been itching for a chance to get away. If she was alive, she probably wouldn't come back when she got the chance. He'd fucked up. He lost her, twice. First on Mars, then on Nineveh. It was worse than the first time he'd lost her back in California. At least then, there was enough blame to go around. Enough that they could patch things up. The dreams, a serene serial that had unfolded in his sleep since his time with the Children of Light, did not comfort him. Some part of him was stuck back there, and there was nothing he could do. Nothing except lead an investigation to help a war against his own country. Ten minutes till hard burn. All hands prepare for heavy acceleration. The ship's computer. The half hour of proper gravity they had between maneuvers was about to expire. Jim crawled up onto his bunk and laid back. In a moment, the ship would inject him with a sedative to help him sleep through the worst of the burn. Two minutes until hard burn. All hands prepare for heavy acceleration. Doug read over the email once more. Everything in the right place, confirming the meeting schedule, resurrecting the Free Skies Treaty, and lunch with Gregory Singh. He signed his name and sent it off to Hakim back at his office in Luna City. A last quick note to Commander Pushkin at Gagarin, asking for an update on things there. Then he tucked his PPD into the pouch at the side of his bed and felt the universe push down against him. Even with the sedatives pushing him under, he couldn't shake the nagging feeling that he'd forgotten something. Chapter 18. Fugitive. Destination unknown. 21 November, 2129. Jim, this is Allie. I'm on Briggs' ship, but I don't know where we are. He's got me on a long... Alyssa's voice was tinny in the speaker, but there was no mistaking the triumph in it. She thought that somehow, against all the odds, she'd found a terminal she'd been able to hack into. Next port, wherever that is. I'll contact you next time I can. Don't let Reeves trick you into anything stupid. The message had ended. Joss had counted to twenty and then paged her over the intercom, then left the bridge for his quarters to get his costume on. After giving Alyssa some privacy to change, he'd scrambled in next to her and settled in for the long wait. His only contact with Fugitive and the personality-free AI Mondu had provided it with came through his earphone and, if needed, over a pair of contacts in his eyes. The contacts had been a bad idea. In the long cold, even in the shelter with the heat of two bodies, his tears kept trying to freeze. Somewhere along the line, he'd lost all feeling in his nose. As good as the Mylar tent and skin press was, it didn't stand a chance against the minus 30 temperatures out there in the cabin. Frozen to a wall in the iced-over interior of Fugitive, Joss had all the time in the world to think while he waited for the ship to wake up. Allie had been through at least two sleep cycles beside him, but that was only a near guess. She didn't say a word to him the whole time they were in there, and now that they were coming up on the end of it, she was asleep again. Or, at least, he assumed she didn't snore like that when she was awake. With nearly 24 freezing, agonized hours to make his mind up about what he was going to do, Joss had made middling progress. 
going back on the run wasn't a solution. The Hartmans had found him the first time, and this time he was sure Cassie would be looking for him as well. What the CIA couldn't find, the Green Lady certainly could, even if he went underground in the Persian zone somewhere. And Cassie would take it personally if he didn't come back and prove she'd been right to let him go. It would serve him right if she found him on a toilet somewhere and plunged a dagger through his guts. Besides, that decision had been made before he crawled into the tent. Fugitive's course was set. It was too late to change it now without raising eyebrows at tracking stations that might be looking for her. Maybe running before had saved his skin, but in one sense or another, he'd allowed the people who hunted him to choose his life for him. Along the way, he'd seen a handful of places he wouldn't mind settling down, but none he liked better than the life he'd found at Phalanx, except maybe for the first one he abandoned. He wondered how big Veronica and Seth had grown since he'd gone. He wondered how Joanne had fared. Indulging regrets was a game for the weak-minded. He had more important things to worry about now. In his ear, Joss heard the ship waking up. Its status reports flashed across his vision, first the radiators redeploying to regular running position, then fugitive reorienting itself to point its torch away from the Earth-Luna system, then spinning up the Broussard polywell, then the ventilation system. Twenty minutes later, her AI whispered, Radiation levels nominal. You are cleared to exit the shelter. Joss pulled the zip on his side of the shelter, slowly. He didn't want to wake Alyssa if he could avoid it. He wanted time to take a shower and sort out his plan before he had to cope with her incessant poker demands. He did, of course, have to wait until they were under acceleration to take a proper shower. For now, all he could do was step into the sand unit's shower cubicle and get a good misting and soaping, but even that helped. He stripped the skin press off and yanked the diaper out, then shoved the diaper into the vacuum disposal chute. With luck, it would fall into Earth orbit and eventually hit the White House. Showered, after a fashion, and back in a ship suit, Joss walled himself off on the bridge, grabbed a PPD, and attached himself to a wall with a Velcro strap. Bill Shelley's frame was gorgeous from what Joss knew about it, and as far as he could see, it only wound up with one body on the deck, the original Scott Walters. There had to be one, or Cassie and Reeves wouldn't both be looking for him. Probably the murder of Scott Walters would have been a bonus. Eliminating a potential informer? Maybe. Shelley's son-in-law had been passing for Walters, but they found his body at Sidon months before. A clone, no doubt, which meant he would have had to be in on the attack against his own wife. That suggested that Shelley was behind all the attacks on VIP families, including the one on Marion Shelley. It smelled to Joss like a ground-clearing exercise. Shelley was getting rid of the people who could out him. Seemed like a long way to go just to silence potential problems. The only other thing that Shelley seemed to gain from the whole affair was an excuse to change his vote, and a whole boatload of public sympathy. There were other ways to change a vote. It had to be cover for something else, something on behalf of whoever was pulling Shelley's strings. If Joss could figure out the angle, the real reason for Shelley's shenanigans, he might be able to work out a plan that he could pull off on his own. It wasn't as if he could just kidnap Shelley, torture the truth out of him, and turn him over to... Reeves. Reeves bought the frame, but only just. 
If he'd been acting out of loyalty to Shelley, then Joss wouldn't have lived long enough to know that Reeves was at Nineveh. Reeves was the key. Joss knew Shelley was bent, but if Reeves didn't, there might just be a way. Maybe getting his hands on his old files would be enough. Tearing himself loose from the Velcro on the wall, Joss tumbled toward the PPD again. When he caught it, he reached out to the ceiling with his left hand and caught himself on a grip, pulling back up into the wall and fixing himself. He scribbled faster than he could think, getting down everything he could remember being in those files. But on their own, they wouldn't work. Not specific enough, and even proving Shelley was bent didn't clear Joss of the frame. The conspiracy was too improbable. There was another way, though. The holiday recess was coming up. The Shelley estates were all in civilian neighborhoods. If he could get Shelley personally, or get a recording of him copping to the whole mess, he turned it over in his mind. If he could find a way to get in, if he could get Bill to talk, if he could get out again, if he could slip in and out of the country secretly with his skin intact, kidnapping the chairman of the Space Affairs Committee? Big job. Joss scribbled down everything he could remember about the Shelley houses, trying to see what it would take to get inside. The more he looked at it, the more he wound up back where he'd started before the cold shift. He'd need a small commando team to pull it off. Maybe four people, three if he was lucky. There wasn't anyone left on Earth who owed him that big a favor. He mulled it over for another dozen minutes, but nothing came to him. These things took time. Fugitive would be under acceleration in another hour or so, heading bang on for low Earth orbit. Somehow, he would get into the U.S. and grab Shelley. Somehow. If only Joss had a couple more good cards up his cuff. He reached out for a grab bar and started pulling himself along the deck to the door. He did have one more resource that he hadn't considered exploiting yet. And she probably wanted to play cards with him. You've been listening to Episode 4 of Free Will and Other Compulsions, Book 2 of the Antithesis Progression, written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer, with original music by Danny Shade, used with permission. This episode starred Miss Callender as Alyssa Hartman, Kitty Nakian as Fugitives AI and The Answering Service, Stephen H. Wilson as Percy Scott, Nobilis Reed as The Nurse, and Kim the Comic Book Goddess as Val. Some sounds courtesy of the Free Sound Project at www.freesound.org. Other sounds copyright Kitty Nakian and Artistic Whispers Productions. This audiobook is recorded, edited, and mixed at Artistic Whispers Productions in Castro Valley, California. The book is copyright 1999 and 2011 J. Daniel Sawyer, and the recording is copyright 2013 Artistic Whispers Productions. This podcast is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, and all other rights are reserved to the author. Prague Rock lovers, you are listening to a sample of Tales from Sheepfather's Grove, the solo debut of Moth Vellum founder and guitarist Johannes Lulai. His music will take you on a magical journey through a lush cinematic landscape. It is the perfect marriage of acoustic and symphonic prog rock. You can purchase the album at johanneslulai.com and follow Johannes on Facebook. Tales from Sheepfather's Grove is also available on iTunes.
Well, it finally happened. The demons of Busy finally pounced on me. Now, in my defense, well, there's a lot to say in my defense, but it wouldn't really matter now, would it? You'd still have had to wait almost a whole extra two weeks for this episode, which really sucks. Sorry about that. Don't worry, though. Your fix of the next 10,000 hours will drop more or less at the same time this one did, and we'll almost be back on schedule. I may be late again next week because we are recording the narration for Crudrat during the usual times I would be producing next week's episode, but I will do my best, and if I don't get it to you, you'll get another twofer the following week. The Crudrat Kickstarter is a rousing success. We're officially funded and we've hit the first of our stretch goals, and with less than two days left to go, we're within only $1,000 of our second stretch goals. Crudrat is happening, which means that everyone will be able to buy it through Audible next summer, but the people who backed us will get it in February, as well as getting all the nifty other stuff. So if you've been meaning to check it out, but didn't want to bother until you were reasonably sure you'd get your goodies, now's the time. As I said, we've got just under two days to go to hit that last stretch goal, and we're giving out extra special goodies to everyone who pitches in during this last week. We've got some pretty spectacular stretch goals in the first place, and these goodies should help make it a little bit easier to part with a few dollars and make this happen. I know a lot of you listening have already gone the extra mile to make this happen. Thank you very much. The money that makes Crudrat will also be laying infrastructure here that will make future fullcast audio productions faster and cheaper, which means there will be even more AWP fullcast audio next year as a direct result of your help on this campaign. It's all thanks to you. You guys are amazing. Thank you. Also kind of crazy, but hey. So that brings me to this other thing I've been sitting on for a bit. Chris Lester of the Metamore City podcast called me up the other day to tell me he's getting back into the podcasting game soon, too, and he wants to start getting together to record more feedback shows. This means that sometime in November, we're going to lay down the next dealing in. So if you want to prod us into having a weird conversation, or if you want to ask us embarrassing questions, or voice your opinion on the shenanigans I've been up to, now's the time to start sending that feedback in. Kitty Nakian will join us too, and since Kitty's Corner has turned out to be such a success on the next 10,000 hours, I suspect she'll be causing a lot of trouble. Should be a good time. Remember that you can send me questions, comments, criticisms, attaboys, and death threats via email at feedback at jdsawyer.net, leave comments on the blog at jdsawyer.net, tweet me at dsawyer, or leave voicemail at 612-567-7595. And if you're enjoying yourself, please do tell your friends. Post a review on iTunes, blog about us, tweet about us, and pelt your enemies with CD or memory stick copies to get people hooked. And remember, you can buy my books just about everywhere, including signed paperbacks at jdsawyer.net, or you can leave a tip in the tip jar at jdsawyer.net, a portion of which goes to our masterful composer, Danny Shade. I'll see you again soon. I swear I'll try to make it on time next week, but if I don't, like I said, you'll get another twofer of free will and the next 10,000 hours. And until then, I leave you with the nagging questions. Will Reeves be able to resurrect the Free Skies Treaty? If he does, what will that do to the future of the Lunar Colonies? 
What other problems will Cassie Orenthal put in Jim Hartman's way, and how will he get around them? Can Joss convince Allie to join him? What price will she demand in return? And perhaps most importantly, what will happen when the omnivore finds the answers it seeks? Find out next time. And remember, it isn't whether you win or lose. It's how you rig the game.